War, corruption, and political instability. They seem to aptly describe the end of Benjamin Netanyahu's term as the Israeli Prime Minister, an office he has held for 12 years. There's been four elections in the last two years, but he has failed to form a coalition, each time leading to gridlock in the Knesset. So on Wednesday night, one hour before the deadline, the head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, announced to President Raven Rivlin that he was able to form a coalition government. However, Yair Lapid, the head of the centrist Yeshatid party, would not become prime minister. Instead, Naftali Bennett, his longtime rival and leader of the New Right Party, will replace Bibi. This coalition government also marks the first time Mansour Abbas will take part and is the first time an Arab party will be part of the government in decades. Nevertheless, with a fragile majority of only plus one and disparate political beliefs amongst the coalition parties, this makes for a fragile arrangement. However, Bibi is a cat with nine lives, so I'd never fully count him out. So now to discuss, I have my co-host here, Jonah Van Dreisem, and Eve Ben Jacob, a former member of the IDF. So Neve, let's start with you. Tell us how Israelis feel about the change. How are they reacting to this new coalition government and the removal of Bibi, who's been a longtime political figure? You know, he, he's almost become a cultural icon in the country with many of the people uh, fondly referring to him, as I have, as Bibi. So take it away. Um, okay, so, well, I I live in as generally leftist areas so a lot of people here are kind of generally glad to see the shift in power and you know getting out of office but it's the people that are taking in the vacuum or going into his job is it's it's it, we're all very skeptical at the end of the day um like like you said it, it's kind of like a a culture thing to just uh, protest BB. I remember about a year or an, a year and a half ago, every so often my dad or my friends would post pictures of people across the country waving banners in intersection on the highway, on freeways in the middle of the town of anti uh, Netanyahu, uh, uh, anti BB basically. Uh, it's 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 really weird right now. I personally I don't know what to, to think of it right now because I as soon as I turned 18 I got into the whole shit show of uh, um, is it okay the curse or uh, so it I turned 18 and I was just starting to understand the politics of uh, the country I live in and it's kind of a shell shock to just say all right you can vote. And then six months later, say, all right, you can vote again. And then six months later again. And then I finish my service and then I'm voting once more. In the span of being, I, I'm also an American citizen. So I was able to, I started my, by voting for uh, in 2000, I don't remember, 2016. Yes. Then the, and then the four votes. Uh, the four different elections for my country, and then another, uh, the final election uh, of uh, 2020. It, it's just kind of crazy for me that it, in four years I was able, to, I was voted six times. I I just don't know what to really make of what's going on right now. I'm 
and uh and and on top of all the pandemic and uh the situation that recently just happened with gaza is just really has me unsettled if, if i can follow up on kind of that unsettlement you have there um obviously this change in government the the stability that has kind of somewhat seemingly come now to israel the israeli political scene with this uh announced coalition and obviously as john stated the bb still has a week to try and blow this thing up um and it, 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 there is a lot of speculation that yamina uh, one of Naftali Bennett's members, one or two, could defect to Likud and bring them down. So obviously, still tentative. Um, but there was a lot of feeling that the recent conflict and this new government was formed in response to Netanyahu's kind of decision-making inside the recent 11-day war. Um, can you tell us, just obviously from your community and from your perspective, how responsible you think the political instability and uh, Netanyahu's attempts to hold on to power were for uh, responsible for this, the most recent flare up of, of violent conflict? I don't think uh, specifically he had anything to do, like any major part in the conflict. It's this, the conflict between Gaza is recurring. It's something that happens every year, especially during this time period. Uh, it happened during Ramadan and also the uh, Jerusalem Day. And for you guys, I don't know if you know, but during Jerusalem Day, there's uh, what's the so, supremacist, Jewish supremacists waving flags and being just obnoxious uh, all across Jerusalem to the Palestinians there. It's, it's just something that reoccurs. In general, though, I think the instability is something that didn't happen overnight over the de recent decision making of uh, Bibi is just over especially over the pandemic but it's build up of all the hor like the wrong stuff uh, decisions he's made from uh, constantly pushing back his own uh, trial using the pandemic as a, an excuse as the way I see it so I think I think maybe what Joan is trying to get at there um, you know correct me if, if you if I'm wrong but uh the Gaza war seems to be inexorably tied to politics. I mean, uh, the PLO obviously called off the elections because they thought Hamas was going to take charge. So we can say from that, maybe Bibi didn't start the conflict, but like he's definitely as a strong man, he presents himself as similar to Putin or Bolsonaro. They, they exploit conflict to, uh, you know, stir up nationalist sentiment and get a boost in the polls. But it, it, it hasn't seemed to work this time. Are Israelis just fed up with the violence? Are they looking for a more moderate solution for like peace? Well, it, for sure, it's definitely tied to politics. It, it's 100%. One of the things that I don't know if you guys know about this, but we call, we don't call them wars. We call them uh, operations just for the political card that we can, that we can hold. So, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, I don't know how, which is uh, government spending for the reserve duty, for instance, so we get more funding for that, or when it comes to the UN or whatnot, it, it, there's a huge difference between calling it an operation and a war. And I think this time, in terms of uh, BB using it as help, I don't, I, I don't know if it was because Israelis are fed up or it, from specifically, I, I, I don't know really what to make of it. Uh, I think, hold on. Um, 
maybe maybe a better way to clarify, right? In the sense of you know, kind of thinking about is like obviously it's linked to politics, and as you said, right? So what you're saying to us, as far as I'm gathering, is right. It wasn't really BB starting this war now to try and keep into power as some have tried to portray it as, but ultimately it was still his responsibility because of his policies and kind of his long-term attitude that's ultimately, you know, as much as there's these yearly, as you called them, operations um, around this time and kind of a flare-up of conflict, conflict around Jerusalem Day, kind of the recent lead-up and avoidance of criminal prosecution and criminal justice is ultimately what made it an untenable situation. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess. Um, it, whether he's, he had a hand in starting it or not, I, I don't know. But whether he used it for political gain, that, that I do know. Um, I, so you think you think he exploited the violence to try and boost Israeli nationalism? I don't think I think so. At all in an attempt to keep his seat of power. From a pre, from history of knowing him, uh, I know his main goal is just to keep his seat of power. And I think that goes to something Jonah said, which is the corruption charges. You know, as long as he remains prime minister. He can't really be charged. Yeah, John, um, you're frozen right now. There you go. Oh, there hello? you go. You're back. Yeah, you're yeah, back. As, lo as long as uh, BB stays as prime minister, he can't be charged. Is that correct, Neve? Uh, from a technical standpoint, he can be charged. But I think as long as he has power, he will do everything he can within that power to delay it and delay it and delay it until I don't know what his end game plan is. I mean, he used the I mean, pandemic lockdowns to delay his trials. Yeah, so, like, obviously, legally, he's in court right now fighting it out. Like, it's not like he's completely immune, but he can abuse no, the office yeah. of... He can abuse his office to delay and, and uh, obstruct the, the justice system. Yeah. He, he definitely can, and I think he knows that people know, notice it. But he's just delaying, I guess, what I see is inevitable. Maybe he has an end game plan that seems to work out for him, but I sure hope they won't. So what do you think of his opposition? Do you have any faith in them? I don't have that much faith in the opposition, to be honest. I know they're equally just, they're very equal to him. They also want to see the power just for the sake of power from what, the way I see it. There's not much people that I see that in the Knesset or in government right now that see for the betterment of the people. It's more as in the betterment of themselves and their own party. And as you know, in a, in a young adult of this country, I don't know how that affects me in the future. The two names that have been obviously Yar Lapid is the largest and most powerful member of this coalition as the most seats, the person who is given the mandate to form government. Um, however, uh, Mansour Abbas obviously is joining the cabinet, um, not only joining the cabinet, but likely joining the security cabinet, which is the most exclusive and powerful part of the Israeli government. And obviously, uh, Neftali Bennett joining as prime minister, and then Yar Lapid and him switching positions of foreign affairs ministers. So three very, very different people there. Um, 
obviously united around this idea of ditching Netanyahu. I mean, do you, are Israelis thinking that this is going to bring stability? That you know, the, the the coalition has promised to just focus on economic domestic issues, try and you know, Lapid Abbas and Bennett all have a veto on any foreign policy issues, so it's not likely a ton is going to change, um, other than perhaps some slowdown of current Israeli policy. But my my more general question is. Do people think that this is going to calm things down, at least that this is a unity government, that it, this represents a number of factions, and even if it doesn't accomplish a great number of things, it might just cool tensions because things might just not be happening and by having things kind of chill, um, be by not having all these great big political conversations, it would be kind of a managerial government. Do you see that being kind of what's coming into place, or do you think it's just going to be this government is so different, so completely at odds that it's going to collapse within a year? Um, I don't know about collapse, but it's completely different from what we're used to. Again, like 12, I don't know, 12 or so years of uh, BB's government, it's going to be extremely different. Whether we see it as something good, I don't think a lot of people see it as something good. I think a lot of people see it as a different danger to worry about because Bennett has his agenda which is uh, I'm not actually quite sure about that actually now I think of it on well I mean was Netanyahu's chief of staff so has some yeah, similarities to him he so, had yeah so kind of I actually saw him once <laughs> oh did so, so I think uh, I think what we're trying to get at is here is like this is more or less more of the same, won't it be? I mean, like, I feel at least that uh, not much yeah. will change. I mean, Bennett is uh, part of the military apparatus. He's the Secretary of Defense from 2019 to 2020. Um, he's, he's definitely right-wing. So is Mansour Abbas. Like, people are trying to portray this as a, as a left-wing government but, uh, and uh, move from the right-wing Likud. I don't see that happening. I see the possibility that this goes even more right-wing than Likud. What, what do you say to that? I do think it will be more right-winged. I think it's going to be more uh, warmongering, honestly, um, that I am worried about as, you know, someone who's still doing reserve duty and has friends that are also doing still active uh, just in general in safety, but also for in general in the future. I know it's all they want is just more power. And to get it from like, not, uh, I don't know how to put words into it. I'm trying to translate it from Hebrew. Not, not to get it from the best of sources, I guess. Okay, so uh, what, what about, you've talked a lot about foreign policy, the warmongering, but what do you think about domestic change? I mean, uh, Tel Aviv is a famously left-wing, you know, like pro-gay marriage uh, pro-woman's rights city, but the rest of the countries, especially the rural parts, are, are a lot more conservative. What, what, what do you think will happen for social change? Do you think there's a possibility that uh, the country as a whole will move towards looking like Tel Aviv, or is it going to go back to entrenched uh, religious fundamentalism? I think domestic policy won't change too much, to be honest. Um... Everyone's focused on the foreign policy, but also 
I don't think Bennett is a complete it's completely blind. Like he sees the amount of the the how uh central Tel Aviv is and similar uh cities to this liberal state of mind. But um I I I don't think he'll do any drastic changes for the for the against liberal the uh, liberal state of mind. Kind of moving off of policy and more of kind of your concern for the future. Um, you mentioned obviously member of the Israeli former member of the Israeli Defense Force. Um, you were called up to service again as a reservist uh, during this most recent flare up of tensions and the conflict. Yeah. Can you? And obviously you're worried because I'm sure you don't want to go out again with a gun in your hand that you said you, you're friends and you don't want to go out there, you know, obviously doing your duty, but not something you enjoy, something you're looking forward to. Can you kind of just describe what it was like for you being called up, especially as someone who was not in active service, but then was had to be called up um, by the government and put into a really difficult situation? Can you know, tell us what you're comfortable Con with, but please, if you can describe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I think, I think I can talk about that. Um, for me, luckily, I don't have to go out to anywhere dangerous, but it's no less critical. Um, contrary to what it might sound like, I I was glad I was called up because um, I was called up a few days, like three or four days after the whole uh, attack began. I knew it was going to come. I, it was just a matter of time, but I was glad I was called up because I knew uh the soldiers that are still on duty they were doing their job and i knew i was going there to relieve them i whether i was doing something i was going to do something important or not i know the most important thing i was going to be doing is letting those uh guys you know rest after long long hours of work like the, the shifts that we had to do were 12 hours and 12 hours every rotation it's it's, it's kind of brutal so you just uh, said that you expected it to happen. You expected to be called up. You expected the violence. Why is that? It, it's not that I expected the violence. Well, I did expect the violence, but that's just from you know prior knowledge of my uh, previous service. It's just from a hunch or from uh, how I knew things usually behaved and how things came out. Even if I wasn't in duty, we, we all know how things happen here. Gaza starts launching rockets. The IDF will deter those rockets and also actively attack launch sites uh, or any other target it deems fit, the, the IDF deems fit. So I knew it was going to happen. And I knew because of where I was, I was where I served. I knew uh, I needed to be called at some point to help in the effort. So obviously, Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2006. Um, but there's been occasional uh, military incursions uh, into the area, um, especially to sometimes clear out high-level targets. Um, what, what do you think the chances are that this uh, escalates once again and that uh, ground forces are, could be deployed? I mean, every time one of these rocket attacks happen, we see... Uh, Israeli tanks massing on the border, you know, whether it's a show of force or, or you know, they're actually intending to go in is always unclear. But what do you see the likelihood that a, that a ground 
uh, force could be sent in again, maybe even an occupation like like happened uh, uh, in the early 2000s. I don't think an occupation will happen anytime soon. I, I hope I'm right. Um, and in terms of another flare up, from uh, looking previously in the past few years, I don't think a flare up will happen anytime soon because a conflict usually happens in regards to what's going on right now in the country or going on in the area, uh, whether it be an a, a stabbing attack in Jerusalem or the end of the Ramadan clashing with the flags or what happened in the temple of the, the, at, at uh, the mosque Al-Aqsa. It, it, it really depends on what's going on. And unless something major happens again, I don't think anything will seriously happen. Okay, so you mentioned the Alaska Mosque there. Sorry, John, to cut you off there. Um, uh, maybe do you want to explain to people what, what this is and why it's so contentious? Why is the Temple Mount such a big deal between Israelis and Palestinians? In general, or the situation that happened? Like, why is in general, like, well, both. Well, well, why is this a continued source of conflict between these two peoples? Well, Al-Aqsa is a mosque that is uh, above the Western Wall. Uh, and the only people that are allowed there freely to traverse there are Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, or I'm uh, not quite sure how to define them, but they freely roam there. Uh, and heavily geared police officers in full riot gear and uh, rifles and whatnot. And occasionally, you know, groups of uh, tourists or Jews are allowed to go up there with uh, the simple rule of not being allowed to wear any religious symboling and not to be disrespectful to the area. It's, it's generally a holy ground for Muslims. Um, there, the mosque used to be also open for everyone, for all the people. But a few years ago, there was a incident with an Australian uh, tourist lighting lighting a fire in the mosque and then the mosque was closed to only Muslims. Uh, what recently happened, as we all know, is uh, officers, uh, police officers stormed the, the mosque while people were praying. But it's a pretty gray area, what, act, what happened. And one uh, hand, I know that we know that I know that the police officers were attacking the rioters because they were being provoked by being thrown rocks at, but they were using also excessive force. And there was also the mixture of what was happening uh, around Jerusalem in general, the eviction of people from their homes. And it just caused a lot of tension uh, that, to build up and you know just pop uh, in that area. It was Ramadan, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of uh, Muslims with prayers in there and uh, a, good, a good amount of uh, police officers in full Riker, which is doesn't make a crowd really calm. It, in, in fact, the opposite uh, aggravates them even more. So, is it is it uh, would I be correct in saying it's kind of hard to pin blame on completely one side or the other? You know, both of them act in provocative ways. Both of them uh, have like a very like there's a lack of trust and faith between the two groups. So all these provocations. Uh, between them, you know, it easily escalates uh, since there's no goodwill between the two parties. Is, is that basically correct? 
I think there well, there is no trust whatsoever between uh, the Muslim population or Palestinian population and um, the police and also the religious populace. Uh, but I don't think it. I don't think it's like a point which side is wrong. I think it's more of a scale, as in which side has done more wrong and which side has done least wrong. Both sides have obviously just done bad things, but one side has used a bit more excessive force than the other. Just because so, we're running low on time here, and I just wanted to touch upon something almost hopeful, if I may, um, but just kind of with the change in government and with the change in the U.S., there was there's a lot of speculation that uh, Biden is going to have the ability with this new government uh, because it will be a better relationship than the one that Obama and Biden had with Netanyahu and on and on and on, right, with Democratic presidents struggling to have a good relationship with him. Um, obviously, there's a lot of questions still, but do you think that Biden is going to be able to exert more influence over this government, A, and then B, is that give does that put Biden in a strong enough position to you know, I think it's doubtful that anyone is going to be negotiating like a grand peace plan. But do you think Biden could move the needle uh, in a, a truly positive direction or is it just going to default backwards? After the previous administration, I have a lot more faith in Biden. I have like more than maybe that should be, but I do think he can get the ball rolling in terms of a better relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Recently, I just uh, heard on the radio, I think it was either this morning or yesterday, that on the news uh, they said uh, the U.S. declared that it will fully uh, rearm the Iron Dome uh, pods, which is amazing. The Iron, the Iron Dome pods aren't, the Iron Dome isn't meant for attack, it's meant purely for defense. And seeing the U.S., hearing the U.S. Say, declaring that it will help support Israel in defending itself is tremendous news it's amazing so and of course I, yeah. oh sorry that i, I of yeah, course yeah, no, I think, no, no. um I, I think it's important for people to remember that you know without the iron dome israel's actions would be far more aggressive um without the iron dome those three thousand rockets would have landed in israel and that would have caused a big retaliation so th the iron dome might be the single uh, thing which has kept peace, which has stopped escalations of violence, because it's allowed Israel to basically go unharmed from these rocket attacks. Is yeah. that relatively correct? I, I think it is. Uh, is it okay if I speak a bit about the just personally being attacked? <laughs> so, yeah, go for uh, it. So the Iron Dome doesn't attack, doesn't fire at every single rocket that Gaza fires. Over the course of a I don't, since it was implemented, I think in 2014, only about 1,200, 1,500 rockets have been fired from the Iron Dome. It fires specifically at rockets that the system uh, detects that it's going to probably land in a populated area, which is amazing technology, but it's still terrifying to be in a house not hearing the air raid siren because the Iron Dome won't act, fire on a rocket, but still hearing rockets flying over my house i like i more often than not i heard explosions from the rockets 
I don't know if they were detonating there or in the ground, but I heard them more often than hearing the siren for the Iron Dome. I mean, just personally, I remember when I when I lived in Israel for that summer, every single house I had was a bomb shelter. You know, every single house I, I was in, there was one room that was a bomb shelter. And, you know, that it's, it's just a different mindset. I don't think people realize, um, you know, we're safe in Canada here. I don't think people realize the ever-present threat that exists there. And that maybe changes your mindset a bit. Um, oh, do you want to speak oh, to that sure. at all? Yeah, um, I actually talk a lot. I, I play video games. So I talk a lot with people that are not from Israel and don't have the same experience as I do. I have mostly Europeans, but also Americans. And when I talk to them, it's it's kind of weird because when they're talking about a bomb shelter, you immediately think, oh, it's just a crazy guy who thinks it's the end of the world. But when I'm talking about a bomb shelter here, it's like, who doesn't have a bomb shelter? You'd be crazy not to have one. Or how normal it is how in schools in uh parallel to having fire drills we also have missile attack drills and in the actual schools every er section of the school has a, a sign saying how many seconds you have to reach the bomb shelter before a potential bomb can happen rooms can potentially go up from 120 seconds to as little as 15 to 20 seconds to reach a bomb shelter it is it sounds crazy but it's it's normal here it, it's normal life like that Jonah, you have any last questions here? Yeah, I just just kind of absorbing that because I kind of think about the shooter drills we have in the U.S. and how we kind of like people ask, oh, is that really necessary or is like doing that? And I, you know, it, for me, I just can't imagine for children, right? Like, you know, we were walking around the school and that's it's 120 seconds to the nearest bomb shelter. So it, it, yeah. it just it's stunning for to me. I mean, I think about, you know, really my question is if you could just ask you know or say something to you know people this is your chance to just say like you know something to reconsider something to think what would that be what would you what would you want people to like try and rethink about this whole thing well, yeah like what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions from uh, that you see in the newspapers like what, what do we get wrong about this conflict the israeli people and the palestinian people it, what i want mostly to get is that the israeli people even those that still serve in the IDF, mostly, you know, the the lower ranks, not the high command, and Palestinians or Muslims that are under the ruling of Hamas, at the end of the day, we don't represent these groups, these organizations, whether it's Hamas or our government, and we're just normal people that want peace. We want, pe we want to live our days peacefully, normally, go to work, come back home safely without worrying if uh, a two-ton explosive device is going to land in my home. And uh, what about the idea, you see this in the news a lot, that Israel is an apartheid state. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, when I was in Israel, I saw plenty oh, of Arabs sorry, going around. That there's this idea in the news media that Israel is an apartheid state. But obviously, with this Arab government coming into power in coalition with the, with the right wing, uh, that's kind of been challenged. Um, do you want to talk at all about that? You know, like your experience with Arab integration in the country? It's it is it's just a it's just a mess. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, I mean, I I see Arabs. They're not, you know, rare. Obviously, 
or just people to living. Today I was at work. I saw uh, some Arabs, you know, talking. The security guard was a uh, Arab. He was talking on the phone the entire time uh, in Arabic. It was uh, normal. But there is always a general feeling when I'm on a bus and there's another guy there that is Arab that I'm scared. It's, it's subtle racism, honestly, but it's it's, it's and not... i know you like you're a nice guy like i i never saw you do anything racist but these are just subconscious things that you're saying exist it, it, it exists and there's it's not like you're going to walk down in the street and you're going to see uh a jewish house a jewish house or an arab house an arab house a jewish house it's it's it's, it's nothing like that it's strictly jewish neighborhoods then there's an arab village and it's all separated it's not even in the same district um like self-segregated almost so yeah and it's not even also just you know completely towards only uh arabs and jews it's also jews and religious jews um or as uh the hasidic not not only the hasidic but the uh i don't know how to how, how to translate it uh people that live in the territories that move into the the settlers the settlers yes that's another thing uh, but that's a, a, another big topic all right there well i think we're basically out of time so i think we should end it there that, that was great to talk with you neve So, John, that was a really interesting conversation with uh, Eve and Jacob there. I think he's a really insightful guy. Uh, I, I really appreciated how he was willing to be self-reflective about himself and kind of some of the challenges he faces in everyday life. It's, it's a fascinating place and it's a fascinating challenge um, that I'm not sure can ever be solved. But I'm optimistic and I want to kind of lay out right now between the two of us, because I know we've been disagreeing about it, that I, I do have a lot of optimism about this new government. I mean, I'm not, I'm not blind to the challenges there, but I am, I am hopeful. Uh, and the reason I'm hopeful is in part because Nafali Bennett is actually such an extreme guy, um, but he's willing to go into a coalition with someone who's on the total opposite viewpoint of his uh, ideology, his worldview, uh, Mansour Abbas. And what it really reminded me of when I saw these people working together was um, the end of South Africa's apartheid regime, and particularly uh, the president of that time, Frederick Leclerc, uh, who reminds me a lot of Bennett. And the reason he reminds me a lot of Bennett is uh, both of them kind of came up through their traditional institutions of power. They were close friends of the incumbent, leading members of the right wing, uh, were seen as largely status quo figures, maybe even more extreme than previous figures in those states. Um, but they also recognized the need for change. Uh, and specifically in the case of Leclerc, he obviously uh, was willing to allow, freed Nelson Mandela, uh, allowed Nelson Mandela to run in elections, and then formed, a, once he lost to Mandela in those elections, formed a unity government with him and helped implement the new South African government. And obviously there's so much complexity and difficulty there, but I think just that basic step forward of being these two extremes and then Yar Lapid himself, who is a very strong 
proponent of peace and change, um, willing to work together as the three big partners in this coalition. You know, no guarantees, but I think it bodes very well. I think it could be the dam break potentially. What do you think? Yeah, so I have I have a bit of a different view. Um, I don't have any faith in this government succeeding. Um, I think it's very much reminiscent of uh, Likud's uh, former coalition with uh, Kohol Levan. That's a uh, blue and white. Um, where Bibi went into power in a power sharing agreement with uh, Benny Gantz, and it basically immediately fell apart. And I just see this as a even more exacerbated issue than that, because that was two parties with fa fairly similar views, unable to work together. This is eight parties. This is eight political parties with a disparate, disparate group of uh, ideological ideas that are not at all compatible. Um, of course, they do so share some similarities, but th there's huge disagreements. And we've already seen uh, one member, Amiche uh, Hikli, has defected and said they're not going to join this uh, coalition party. And it's reduced the majority to 61 seats, the bare minimum to form a government. And uh, Neil Abach, another uh, member of Yamina, has uh, said he's possibly interested in defecting as well to Likud. So I don't even think this government may form. You know, there's a possibility that it'll fall apart before it even happens, uh, let alone surviving for four years. I think a totally legitimate point. I mean, there's, I think any coalition government, there's always questions about can it survive the four years. I think, you know, Yamina is a very interesting party because it constantly combines and this combines itself with Likud. Right. You've seen that the, in the last in the what is it, the four four elections they've had in the last two years. Uh, Yamina has run uh, in two of those elections as a joint slate uh, with the food. So you're absolutely right that th there's a real possibility of defection. Oftentimes, though, you do see this in Israeli politics, uh, particularly with MPs who are kind of on the edges, who are not that popular with the leader. And they're like, oh, I may vote against the confidence motion. And I'm sure, you know, Naftali Bennett wants to be prime minister really, really badly. He knows if he goes into an election now after making this deal without having delivered something, his base is probably going to bail on him and go to Likud. So I, I mean, there's obviously dangers within that. But my guess is that the members who are threatening to defect will have some pretty senior ministries um, to kind of assuage their guilt. And I also think that actually bodes well that such... Um, aggressive opponents of, of the left uh, of this plan would actually end up be giving ministries to placate themselves to support this plan because I think it means that they are acting in such a way that they know that people, I think A, Israel is just sick and tired of constant elections. I mean, I, I can't admit, I've had to vote three or four times in the last four years, right? And I'm, I don't want to vote that much. So I can't imagine how sick and tired of it. So I think there's, I think there's just a kind of a sick and tired of so much political churn, and particularly with Netanyahu's corruption that I think they will get in. Um, obviously, narrowly, as you said, but I think, I think, in, I think stability will come purely out of a sense of people are tired. Yeah, and I want to touch on two things you said there. So first, uh, you mentioned uh, Yair Lapid and the power sharing. Uh, I, think, I think you're right. Uh, Bennett does want to be in power and Yair, Yair Lapid did something uh, pretty smart, 
but which could turn out to be a fatal mistake. He he offered Naftali Bennett the first two-year term as prime minister, and they're going to exchange and uh, swap, and he'll get the second two years. This is a sign of good faith. He's putting himself out there. And similarly, I think maybe some of the protests, uh, some of the grumblings we've seen on the far right in Yamina, um, they may just be angling for a political appointment. That, that's entirely possible. We also have to remember that junior partners in these agreements can often get screwed over. I mean, uh, Benny Gantz, one of his big reasons for leaving the coalition government with Bibi was that he was getting sidelined. Bibi was just consolidating power around himself. And the same thing happened with the Lim Deb, Lib Dems getting into a coalition government in the UK. They just got sidelined. The junior partner is often in a bad, bad spot. You know, they they just uh, get pushed out of power. Um, and I, I think the same thing's going to happen. I, I really see no faith in this. Well, I mean, I totally understand your point on that. But I think the thing is, Nefali Bennett, as much as he's prime minister, is the junior coalition partner, right? I mean, uh, to be frank, he's actually... Um, he, it's funny, he, he's tied with several other parties in this co coalition. Uh, Cole Levine, uh, as you mentioned, blue and white, under Benny Gantz. Uh, and, and you know what, and Benny Gantz himself is an interesting figure because he was the leader of the uh, anti-Netanyahu campaign for the first two elections. And then because people were getting, because COVID-19 hit and there was really seen as a push, he bent uh, and joined Netanyahu's coalition. So. Uh, it's not surprising to me uh, that that coalition fell apart just because Gantz was so mad. I mean, to an extent, I actually think there's less trust between Gantz and Lapid than there is between uh, Lapid and uh, Bennett because Gantz betrayed Lapid uh, to join Netanyahu when Lapid quite purposely combined his party to join a slate with Blue and White in the previous two elections to fight, uh, first three elections to fight Netanyahu. Um, so, you know, there's there's so many unique dynamics in this coalition, but I think the thing is no one's going to be able to sign blind each other because it is, uh, there's no true senior partner in this coalition. I mean, if it was that Yamina and Bennett were the dominant party in this, that they had, say, 30 seats of the 60-seat coalition, I would say, yeah, you're probably right that Bennett's going to dominate, that he'll probably try and consolidate power. But Yar Lapid has specifically placed each of the party leaders on the National Security Council. Uh, Benny Gantz is going to remain as defense minister. Lapid's going to take over the foreign ministry, and that will be the rotation he has with Bennett. Uh, and then Mansour Abbas, I'm not sure if they've officially announced what ministry Abbas is going to be holding in the cabinet. But my understanding from the agreement is he will be inside the security cabinet, which is massive. And so it's not like one party or the other is going to dominate so much in that extent. And then once again, individual ministries, you kind of get to those domestic ministries. Obviously, they're powerful, um, but individual ministers will control that bureaucracy uh, and will obviously not want one party or the other to steal that away. So but within that self, of course, that could be the thing that brings down the coalition, right? That everyone's there's no there's no natural balance of power with inside this coalition. So it could fall apart. But I think that's also the opportunity here, right? That everyone's truly on equal footing. Um, now the question is, okay, everyone's on equal footing. So that how much is going to actually get approved in cabinet? How much legislation is going to get on the table? Um, 
you know, Israel faces a major economic crisis, as does most of the world. How are they going to? And that's what this coalition is all about. They're going to get uh, economic aid out there. They're going to get moving. Obviously, Mansour Abbas, I imagine, is going to demand a lot more support for uh, Arab Israelis, uh, Muslim Israelis, and potentially even more support inside the Gaza Strip, which makes sense. I'm sure that's already been partially agreed to inside this agreement. But the question is, how extreme, how much support, right? Because there is certainly a sense of Israel and Israelis wanting to make sure that they're taking care of themselves themselves first and absolutely right because they feel they've been mistreated by the world and others and they need to protect themselves so i think more than the foreign policy question because i think the foreign policy has stability in the sense of how the cabinet's been set up i think it's that question of the domestic push and pull because uh bennett is obviously someone who led the settlers was a settler leader um one, much more the way i kind of see him is similar to potentially the clerk and he's someone who understands the settlers does not want a two-state solution, uh, I think rightly recognizes that probably is impossible now, particularly for the settlers. So it, it'd be interesting to see, because I think what's going to come out of this is because there will be more investment in Gaza based, forced to, to happen based off this the dynamics of this coalition, um, that you may actually see a, a, a larger push to some sort of one-state solution. Yeah, and I think there's, you really hit the nail on the head there when you said uh, it's an anti-BB coalition. That's that's 100% what it is. They, they share almost nothing in common, except they want to get Netanyahu out of power. He's completely consolidated the state around himself. And I think in some ways, that's why a lot of people are still voting for him. They just really can't see uh, the country without BB. He's a, a natural statesman. Likud is similar to the Tory party in the UK. It's just a natural ruling party. And I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to, to get over the change. And uh, you also mentioned Mansour Abbas. I mean, it is historic. He's the first uh, Arab Israeli to be included in the Security Council and to uh, be entered into a power sharing agreement in a, in a generation. You know, this hasn't happened in a long time. But uh, you mentioned uh, the economic policy. I, I think this is something Mansour Abbas is uh, purposely putting forth. I mean, he's spent his career pushing for further economic um help to the palestinians and further economic help to the arab israelis but he's been using this to obscure the fact that he's a homophobe and he's a misogynist he i mean he's we should not make any qualms about this he is a hard right islamic fundamentalist he's this is not a left-wing coalition i mean well, it's one of the naftali bennett i oh, don't mean to cut you up but i mean it's, it's probably one of the things he and naftali bennett have in common is that they are yeah that's that's what i was exactly about to say you know like the, those two parties are, are far right, but, uh, you know, together they only make up a fraction of the coalition. I mean, Yamina has seven seats, possibly only five of them are joining, um, and Ram has four. I mean, so that's nine out of 61 seats are hard right on the, on the culturally conservative values. But I mean, uh, you know, that, that's, not, that's not a majority, but it also, it also means that the left-wing ideas of perhaps getting, uh, you know, civil marriages put forth for gay people. I doubt that's going to happen. You know, they're going to be obstructionists. They're going to block any uh, domestic uh, social change. No, absolutely. And I mean, Yar Lapid himself is not, uh, you know, he is a, he's a true centrist. I, he he's, you know, he, he's quite an interesting figure to me. Um, 
because he has quite ably navigated this crisis um, from the beginning, right? I mean, you talk about, we, you know, he, he was, once again, like Bennett was an ally of Netanyahu, came out of a coalition with Likud where Netanyahu seized more power for himself and alienated his coalition partners. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I, it will very much, I, I think, on those kind of interesting societal changes, kind of like the core parts of Israeli culture. I, I do agree with you. You're not going to see those big fundamental shifts. But I think at the same time, kind of, you know, the peace process and kind of that hope to have stability will be there because I think there's such fatigue right now, particularly with the flare of the conflict, that why haven't we got this done? You know, and I, and I heard it even with, with Neve, right? Like, you know, he is proud Israeli, proud of his country, proud of his heritage. You know, everyone should have the right to do so and be that, right? But he has no, you know, he has fear about Palestine and that stuff, but he doesn't have hatred in his heart. I don't think most people in Israel have a deep-seated hatred of each other, but it's it's fear, and you see it ingrained in the culture. And I think kind of the stability around this government that that they have the option. I mean, they could they could be the worst thing ever. They could they could show that these kind of unity governments are so dysfunctional forever that they could blow it up, right? So there's absolutely risks, here. but they have you know people. I, I I like to have faith in people, and I think people rise to the moment. Um, and I, and I'm hopeful that's what we're going to see here because I think people in Israel are just tired of the constant churn. And if, and if some smart people can come into place and say like, you know, how would I put this? Bennett will never allow the settlers to be removed from the strip. That is just not going to happen. That is something he's run on. Israel Batanu, right? One of the other partners in this coalition is also of that same mind. A boss is not, you know, we can we can call a boss what he is. Yes, he he has bigotry in his heart. There's no doubt about this, right? But at the same point, he's not he's not like I'm out here to kill Jews, hate Jews. He's not he's not with Hamas. He's not with any radical group. He's a, he's a he is a politician who believes in peace, who you know recognizes that it's an is a Jewish state. Israel has become a dominant Jewish state, but he wants to make sure that there's protections and rights for this, the strong and, you know, populous Arab minority that is 40% of that country. Um, and, and I think I, I, a boss to me is, is probably going to be the key player in this because I, it's a question of what is a boss willing to move on? Because if he's the guy who says, we're not going to get, a two-state solution. We're not going to get the 1967 lines. And I mean, Yar Lapid says he's all in favor of the, the two-state solution. And I do believe him, but I also think he's he knows it's not going to happen uh, in kind of that immediate sense. I think there might be, like, it's interesting. I think if they work together on it, there might be, like, I think the solution is almost an embrace of, of sorts of Bennett's vision, right? Where it's not a you know, it's not two states, but it's one state where the Arab minority, you know, see similar things in other nations where there's strong cultural divides. North Ireland is a really good example of that, right? Where you have the nationalists and the, the loyalists who have basically equal standing in the parliament and run on, 
lists and and stuff like that, where you could you could see very much a dualist system like they have in North Ireland come into place, but it is ultimately kind of much like much like Ireland, almost two separate-ish nations, but not really because everything kind of is interconnected. So I don't know what that's going to look like, but I definitely think that there's some really unique opportunities there. Yeah, and I think honestly, Bonsu uh, Abbas, you know, despite like my qualms with his, uh, you know, like I disagree with him on a lot of the, the social aspects. But one thing is, I mean, I think he's a, a shining light. I mean, for once, we're going to have someone who can be an alternative to the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and Hamas. I mean, he, he is, he's a different route. Young Palestinians, young Arab Israelis, they can put their faith in this guy who's, as you said, he works within the internal systems. He's working within the political system. He's not a terrorist. I mean, he's not taking violence into his hands. You know, this guy wants to find a peaceful solution. And I think that is a good thing uh, that provides an outlet for Arab Israelis to, you know, to channel their energy rather than to violent means, rather than, you know, instead of doing another intifada. You know, this is good. Um, and I think one thing you mentioned, uh, you talked about foreign policy. I, I completely agree. There's no chance it's going to change. Um, the security apparatus won't let it change. I mean, if the prime minister looked like he was going to, you know, make peace or throw away some territory, I think I think he'd be out of office pretty soon. But one thing I want to point out, which is, I think, very interesting about this recent Gaza wars, I think it shows for once that you haven't been able to uh, mobilize the population around Israeli nationalism. This has been an uh, easy playbook for many people throughout decades, Absolutely. not just Israel, where hardliners, where uh, authoritarians have managed to mobilize their population in support of them by, you know, go against the other, by attacking a country, by starting a war, by doing something. I think this did the exact opposite. And I think it really undermined what Bibi had done under Trump's tenure as the United States president. We have to remember, I mean, the Abraham Accords weren't some small thing. I mean, Israel signed peace and normalized relations with four countries, Sudan, Morocco, the UAE, and Bahrain. This is huge. And also like throughout Bibi's tenure, it was, pretty, it was a pretty open secret that the Israelis and the Saudis were working through backdoor channels to counter the Shia movement from Ivan that was being spread into Yemen through the Houthis and through all throughout Iraq and Syria in the civil wars. I mean, they were pretty openly working together to counter the Iranian threat. And so I think, I think this Gaza was really going to undermine uh, Bibi's lasting legacy. And I think it proves that, once again, I mean, you can't, these aren't becoming options anymore. You know, I think people are fed up with war. And I think that is the main reason why we have this coalition government. But I don't think it'll last. Yeah, I mean, I think final thought on that is like, I mean, if someone like Mansour Abbas chooses to work with Naftali Bennett, um, he has his eye on some sort of deal or some some sort of accomplishment there that he thinks can really maybe not, you know, create permanent peace or restore the 67 borders, what have you. I, he's not delusional, but I do, I do think he uh, is definitely hopeful and sees an opportunity there. So I'm, I'm, I'm more than anything, I'm really interested to see what happens. I wanted to flip back to Netanyahu now because, uh, you know, he's either on his way out or he's going to force another election. Um, both are totally possible. I mean, he he could be brought down, I think, in the course of the next election, simply because if he's found guilty of corruption, um, he's barred by Israeli law, he's barred from office. 
Uh, he's been charged. Obviously, there's attempts to change it. So if you're charged, you get removed from office. Uh, I doubt that's going to be able to pass parliament because there are a number of Israeli parliamentarians, I'm sure, who at some point in their lives have been afraid of criminal charges coming their way. So we'll see what happens there. But more than anything, I'm just thinking about Netanyahu as kind of that cultural figure in Israel, right? That if, if he goes, you know, there is going to be a lot of fear in Israeli society. And, and not, I think, rightfully so. But, you know, as you said, I, there's certain people in the media who try to dismiss the Abraham Accords, what have you. They're, they're significant. They, you know, they're not the deal that everyone kind of looks at, which is the Israel-Palestine peace deal. That, but, you know, Israel is in a tenuous situation surrounded by people who are not their allies and that normalization of relationships with their neighbors is not insignificant right so i and i don't think his legacy in that regard is going to get undone bennett likes those accords yar lapid likes those accords they've been they've praised those accords right and i mean benny gantz himself who's in this government was part of the negotiations to create those courts as well um so i disagree with you on the like i think Netanyahu's legacy, he's the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. I mean, he has done, you know, more, con he has fought in more conflicts as a prime minister. He has negotiated a number of agreements. Um, so no, I, I don't think his, his legacy will be reduced. His power though, his power in Israeli culture is certainly going to be reduced. Uh, there, I think there's a lot of speculation that he, he's going to hold on to the Likud leadership. He's going to keep fighting. He's going to do this, this, and that. I'm not so sure. I think once he's out of office, once he doesn't have the powers of the prime ministership to fight with, I think his standing and kind of culture is going to be severely. And maybe that's more what you meant. And maybe I, I apologize if I misunderstood. Uh, but, you know, he is going, he, he will be a significantly reduced figure, absolutely. Um, he will be far more reduced without if he is found guilty of corruption, but I don't think his legacy is going to go anywhere. And I think there's going to be a lot of people and a lot of politicians, frankly, including Naftali Bennett, who may very well continue to try and emulate the model he's created. And particularly in terms of the prime ministership and centralizing power. Yeah. And I just, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. We talk about, uh, Bibi's power. We have to remember that Bibi's power largely comes from a small segment of the society. It's 13% of the population are Hasidic Jews. These are like the people you see around wearing the hats and the curls. These are ultra fundamentalist Jewish people who are deeply religious. And they're not really represented that much. I mean, there are far right parties. I'm Yamina is a far right party, but these are more secular far right par parties. They don't really have the religious aspect to them. So it'll be very interesting to see how the demographics shape up uh, because, you know, these people might be politically homeless. They, they have to go somewhere. And, you know, I, I, I just think this is, uh, you know, we're almost, you know, calling this too soon. You know, a couple of days in Israeli politics is forever. We, we honestly don't know what's going to happen. And one of the reasons behind this is that fact that uh, the parliamentary system, although modeled on, you know, our British parliamentary system, it's in no way comparable. I mean, in Canada, we really only have three parties. We have the Conservatives, New Democrat, and the left, Labour. You know, same in the UK. But in, 
in, you know, in Israel, they have like eight, 10, 12 parties, and they all get a fraction of the vote. So the idea that some other coalition couldn't easily form, I mean, it just takes one scandal, it takes one misstep by this coalition government, and they're out, you know, like, they're being held together through very tenuous ties of being anti-BB. And I, I just don't see that lasting. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing to me is that Isaac Herzog, who's a longtime left-wing labor politician, just got elected president of Israel. So he's going to have a lot of control on kind of the progress of certain things and certainly kind of the stability of government. Um, obviously, the president is kind of a background figure. I, Isaac Herzog, I cannot see as president of Israel not trying to stick his finger into certain things. Um, you know, someone who himself ran against Netanyahu was almost prime minister. Um, so that's going to be very, I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic to stick in there. I also think just inside the coalition things, I mean, uh, unlike our own system, right, where we kind of have, we tend to fall to our minority parliaments. And then once a government falls, we just go straight into an election. Um, if Netanyahu goes and Likud has a new leader, there is a lot, you know, Gideon Saar, who's leader of New Hope, uh, obviously Naftali Bennett, uh, they could form a new right-wing coalition and they could basically, you know, you know, they, we could have this change coalition for a year and then Bennett could not particularly want to hand over the prime ministership and decide he's going to go, go, go negotiate a, uh, a new right-wing coalition. So I think I'll leave it at that. There is a ton of uncertainty. Um, we've laid out some of the bizarre scenarios that always happen within Israeli politics. But with that, I think those are my final thoughts. John, if you have anything else to say. Yeah, no, I think this was great. You know, I really liked our conversation with Neve, and I've liked being able to go into a bit more of a deep dive now for, you know, you and me are political junkies. So we, uh, you know, we can go into a bit more in depth in this after, after segment here. This is Times Escalate, a podcast covering the collapse. And for all those out there, thanks for listening.